Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and this is the State of the Union pod. Coming to you from Doha, Qatar, here at the 2022 FIFA Men's World Cup. As I said, this is the State of the Union, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This episode, oh my goodness, we're going to be talking about all sorts of things, including finishing up our preview, because we are mere hours away from the start of this World Cup. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire, Mossy, David Mossy. How are you doing on this? Well, we're recording this on Saturday, the 19th of November. Like I said, hours away from the kickoff tomorrow of this World Cup. I am doing great. We are 11 hours ahead of Los Angeles, which has been a tad disorienting for me, but I'm getting used to it. There are worse places to be. Very excited uh, for the start of this World Cup. Now, listen, if you are listening out there, you're running, you know, doing your, your runs or you're in the car or whatever, you're not seeing what is happening here. If you do watch on YouTube or other places, uh, thank you for doing that. But we are in front of our Fox Sports set. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, this is unlike anything that you will have ever seen when it comes to broadcasting sports. We are blowing it out. It is still actually under construction, although you'll see me, I'm, I'm in my suit tonight because we did a couple of pre-taped uh, segments here that will air tomorrow as we kick off our coverage uh, with that opening game, Qatar host nation hosting, uh, hosting Ecuador. But I'm telling you, we got three different, four different sets if you really look at the, uh, the middle there. We got lights, I mean, we couldn't be any more Amer American, Mossy, than if we tried here with this, uh, with this set. And I think that this set, ultimately, by the end of the tournament, well, not even by the end of the tournament, by a couple days into the tournament, is, is going to be as big a star as any of the players on the field. Now, we have taken over. This is the Corniche, they call it. Yep. Uh, we've got the West Bay, downtown Doha in the background. So uh, we've picked a great place to be. And, yeah, it's beautiful, absolutely. The weather is gorgeous right now. It's actually cooled down a lot last couple of days. You know, I've been here a, a week, and it's been very hot in terms of the humidity, but it is cooled down. The people are all over the place. This is kind of like a strand walkway where everybody is walking all over the place. You can actually come right in front of our uh, of our sets here and see what is going on and scream and yell and throw stuff at me and Mossy and anybody, anybody else that you want to do. But Mossy, we are here to talk about the soccer. And yes, the stuff that's going on on and off the field. But we have some order of business to take care of here. We have to finish off our uh, preview, right? Uh, you ready to light this candle? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Starting off, uh, and we go right to G, as we know. G, uh, sorry, E, excuse me, G. We're going right to E. Uh, in E, you got Spain uh, as the seeded team. Then you got our friends uh, from CONCACAF Costa Rica. You have uh, Germany, and you have Japan. Uh, let's start with Spain. Uh, this is a Spain where I think winning the World Cup is a bridge too far, but this is also a team that is kind of molded in the tradition of kill you with a thousand cuts. They're going to have more possession than anybody ultimately when this World Cup is over for them. They will have that possession, not always with purpose, and I think ultimately when you look at this team, they still lack a ruthless goal scorer, as do other teams, but this is Spain. So all of that possession amounts to nothing if you don't have somebody ultimately to put it in the back of the net. Yeah, it seems like Luis Enrique is trying to recreate that 2010 formula. There are loads of Barcelona players on this squad, most notably for me, Gavi and Pedri in the midfield, who have drawn comparisons to Xavi and Iniesta. 
Um, very good in the midfield, this team, but I don't think they're strong enough in either box to win this tournament. I don't trust players like Alvaro Morata and Ferran Torres up front and at the back, guys like Paul Torres and Eric Garcia. So I think that might be their undoing. I expect them to get out of this group, but I agree with you. I don't see them as true contenders to win the title. All right. Well, if you don't see Spain as a true contender, then I doubt you are going to see Costa Rica as a true contender, at least the 2022 version of Costa Rica. We have seen in the past Costa Rica punch above their weight and do some incredible things. I don't think that this is a time where they can recapture any of that magic. This is still a Costa Rica team that I think is long in the tooth. We know they've had to take the playoff in order to get here. I think they are just happy to be here regardless of what happens. I agree. They did well to reach this World Cup. Um, early on in the uh, Gold Cup last year, we thought that team looked terrible yes. and absolutely was a spent force. And yet somehow they rallied. They finished the octagonal very strong, got themselves into that playoff, and then ultimately into the World Cup. And it's amazing. You look at that roster, and it's the same guys from always. Brian Ruiz, Joel Campbell, Oscar Duarte, Celso Borges, Kaylor Navas obviously in goal. So, I mean, this team doesn't age. It's like a group of Bonos. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I don't see them uh, making much of a run in this tournament. They go out on the group stage. All right. Uh, let's move on to the Germans uh, coming off of a, a – not great cycle when it comes to the Germans, and they obviously have high expectations, including bombing out of the uh, the last World Cup. So they're looking to reignite that fire, and they certainly have plenty of talent. The interesting thing about this German team is they're in that moment that, are, that a lot of teams go through where they're trying to integrate a young core with the recognition that they have to do that. But the difference between not just the old core, but the old core that actually won a World Cup and the new core coming in, there's this gap in between everybody, and that balance for Hansi Flick right now I think is crucial to get. However, I do think that this team is going to do better than the last team in terms of the uh, the World Cup here, but you got a lot of the usual suspects, whether it's Kimmich and uh, Thomas Muller and Schuller and, and Rudiger and these types of players, and you do have some players coming on too from a youth perspective. Yeah, when Hansi Flick first took charge, they ripped off a bunch of blowout wins in qualifying. Now, if you look at the level of opposition, it wasn't exactly a Batan death march. But nevertheless, I had talked myself into them being a real contender to win this World Cup. I'm starting to question that. It's a good team. There's an interesting blend of youth and experience. I'm excited to watch players like Musiala and Mukoko. Obviously, you still have Thomas Muller. So they're very good. They'll get out of this group. They could go far. I'm not quite sure they're good enough to win it, even though it is Germany we're talking about. All right, well, drink if you had... Uh Baton Death uh, March on your uh, your bingo card over there in terms of uh, Mossy bringing up that. Uh, all right, final team in this group, our friends Japan. We saw them from a U.S. perspective uh, just a few uh, weeks ago. Beat the United States. This is a this is a good Japan team. I'm not sure if it is a great Japan team, but in this group. Um, I'm hard-pressed. I mean, we're going to give our picks in a little bit right now, but this is certainly a team that has enough talent to find its way out of this group. I like this team. We watched them in the September window take it to the U.S. They got out of the group in the last World Cup and had a 2-0 lead on Belgium before uh, collapsing, but that was one of the matches of the tournament. Uh, there are some really good players in there, Kamada, Kubo, Minamino. So, yeah, I expect Spain and Germany to get out of this group, but if one of those slip up, Japan will be right there to take their place. I would not put it past them to be a bit of a Cinderella in this tournament. Okay, all right, let's go to Group F. Uh, group F, uh, the seeded team is our friends, the Belgium, that golden generation of Belgium. Then our friends to the Great White North returning to the World Cup for the first time since 1986, Canada. You got Morocco, and then the uh, World Cup runners-up, 
back in uh, 2018 with Croatia. Let's start off with Belgium because this is a team that has been talked about now for multiple cycles as being a golden generation. Uh, maybe it's an albatross. Maybe it is a, a burden that's too much. There is still plenty of talent, although some of that talent has gone by the wayside. It still, it still is going to be there when you talk about Lukaku, when you talk about uh, Hazard, and certainly when you talk about uh, Kevin, Kevin De Bruyne. Um, but, but this is a team that, until they actually raise a major trophy, there's the sentiment out there that they've left something on the table. And maybe that's not fair to this team or to Roberto Martinez, who I do think, after this cycle, regardless of what happens, is through. Even though he's, he's the sporting director and the coach, I think it, is, it has run his course. He will go on to bigger and better things going on, and it maybe is a, the perfect time for a break. But ultimately, when all is said and done, Mossy, does this golden generation live up to it? I do think they did well to finish third last time. They don't get enough credit for that. Um, the interesting thing is that big three is pretty much down to a big one right now in Kevin De Bruyne because Lukaku is battling all sorts of fitness issues. We're not sure how effective he can be at this World Cup. And Hazard's career has gone off of the cliff, which Roberto Martinez doesn't seem to want to acknowledge. He continues to pick him and start him and, and to talk about him as if he's going to be a major impact player at this World Cup. I have my doubts having watched him for Real Madrid. Now, there are other talented players, of course. I'm curious to watch Trossard, Carrasco, etc. But... You know, they need those big three to step up for, to realistically be able to win this tournament. I'm not sure, other than the Bruyne, the other two are going to be up to it. All right, let's head to uh, Canada. We saw this team just come on like gangbusters when it came to CONCACAF, winning CONCACAF, and really turning a lot of heads. And not just those of us in CONCACAF. You know, I've, I've traveled around. I've talked to a lot of different people that don't follow CONCACAF necessarily, but this is their team for a lot of people when it comes to a dark horse. And you got to understand it with the amount of speed that they had, with the confidence that they have. Um, however, first time back since 1986, right off the bat, your reward, congratulations, you're back at the World Cup, but your reward is you get to play against Belgium in that, uh, in that first game. There's still some questions, even as we uh, come on air tonight, about Alfonso Davies and some talk when it comes to his fitness and whether he is going to be available going forward. They definitely need him, but they certainly have other talent when you look at Tejan Buchanan and others out there. Uh, is this just a happy-to-be-there type of Canada team, or do you think that they actually uh, do something interesting? No, you know, I worried that uh, that whole turbulence with the Federation was going to affect them, but as the tournament's gotten closer... I think they'll put that behind them and play well. It is a talented group, so they, they could be a bit of a dark horse. I wouldn't put it past them to get out of this group. Uh, you mentioned Davies, if he's fit, Jonathan David, Kyle Laren, Tejan Buchanan, Stefan Eustachio. So a lot of good players there. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think they are a potential dark horse as well. All right, well, maybe another potential dark horse in the way that you look at it. Morocco also in this group. They beat Congo in the playoff and they won their group to get to the World Cup. They certainly have uh, quality around the field. Hakimi and uh, Ziyech, who is back in the fold uh, after being kind of out in the cold. They've had, uh, they've had coaching changes. They've had some, uh, some, some turmoil. But this is not a great team, but this is a good team that potentially has opportunities to get some points in this group. Yeah, and so much comes down to Ashraf Hakimi, maybe the best uh right back in the world. You know, we talk about Canada being back in the World Cup for the first time since 1986. Morocco made history in 86, becoming the first African side to top a World Cup group. Um, I don't think that's going to happen here, though. I give them very little chance to get out of this group. And look, if, you're, if your best player is your, is your right back, and look, he is a world-class right back, and they actually play to his strengths. And all that, to be quite honest, all down that right side. But 
at some point you need something else. It is interesting to have uh, Hakim Ziyech back, a player that was banished at one point. Uh, but, you know, World Cups have a way of... Uh <laughs> <laughs> come back, baby, come back. Um, all right, and the last uh, in this group, our friends Croatia. They went to the final before. Was that an anomaly? Was that just a lightning-in-the-bottle type of thing uh, th that happened here. They still got plenty of the usual suspects were there, Kovacic and uh, uh, Perisic and, obviously, Luka Modric, who is still playing very, very well. But do you think that they can find that lightning again? I don't see them recreating that same magic. That was such a remarkable run. Um, as you mentioned, uh, some of the key figures are back, Modric, Perisic, Kovacic, Brozovic. Um, I don't want to say they're a spent force. I still think they're a pretty good team. They, they, they have a good chance of getting out of this group, but I don't see them going much farther beyond that. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we will go into Group G and H and finish off this preview of the groups in the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Don't go anywhere. Give me one. All right, we are back, and we're going to dive into Group G. And my friend over here uh, is very, very excited because, obviously, we get to talk about uh, Brazil. Group G features Brazil. It features uh, Serbia. It features Switzerland and Cameroon. But let's start off. We'll give you your time. You can go as long as you – well, you can't go as long as you want. Brazil, who is my pick to win the World Cup, is a lot of people's pick to win the World Cup, is not you, in, incidentally, is not your pick to win the World Cup. Are we justified in the bullishness that we have relative to this Brazilian squad, especially when it comes to not just the talent, but the depth of talent, which is, means they can throw different looks, and the defensive abilities that this team actually talks uh, uh, has relative to the talk, which is usually when it comes to Brazil, about how attacking in nature are uh, and the talent that they have going forward. No, it's a very strong team for sure. One of the top contenders to win it. Uh, it is interesting. I've heard this narrative recently that Brazil is suspect defensively, and I don't agree with that at all. The numbers don't back it up. Brazil played 30 competitive matches in the cycle between the two Copa Americas and World Cup qualifying. They conceded nine goals in those 30 games. And just in terms of the personnel, you look at the four center backs, Thiago Silva, standout for Chelsea, Marquinhos, captain of PSG, Edith Militão, standout for Real Madrid, uh, Bremer, standout for Juventus, voted the top defender in Serie A. We've got some fans behind us They're big making Mossy some fans. noise. Mossy, yes. You are, you are a, a man of, of international renown and mystery. Right in the middle of a Brazil spiel, too. They, they should know better. Disrespectful. But, but, you know. Uh, but, you know, you've got Allison and goal. You've got players like Casimir and Fabinho playing in front of the back line. And Chichi has turned fullback into a defensive position with this Brazil. So you've got a player like Danilo, who's played mostly center back for Juventus this season and played very well. He's starting at right back. So I actually think it's a very solid defensive team. Anybody that's followed Brazil in this cycle knows the offense sort of comes and goes. The bedrock of the team has been a strong defense. So I'm looking for that to continue in this tournament. All right. You're done talking about Brazil? Sure. I'm sure you'll bring it back around to Brazil at, at a certain point, but we have to move on. Oh, here it comes. Go I, ahead. I do want to get in my, my, to me, this is the most underrated Brazil stat when you talk about their World Cup pedigree. The fact that Brazil has topped their group in each of the last 10 World Cups going back to 1982. Not advanced, topped their group. Oh. Now, there are some that would argue it's because they get handed easier groups. I, I don't agree with that. I think that's a false narrative, and I'm happy to go through that with you someday <laughs> if you want. I get it, Mossy. They're good. All right. Um, Serbia, speaking of good. This is my dark horse type of pick. Um, it, uh, we know with, with uh, Vlaovic up top and with Mitrovic up top, they have, a, they have wonderful firepower. Although, and here's the problem, they are both 
coming off of and nursing injuries, and they need not just them. They need the starting 11 because as a starting 11, I would put them up against anyone. They don't have a lot of depth. So a couple of injuries here or there, and they become very, very mediocre very, very quickly. Having said that, if they can stay healthy, I think that this is a team that can do some wonderful things. And I have them going very far, ultimately, and we'll talk later about my, uh, my picks right now. Uh, do you agree with my bullish nature when it comes to Serbia? Yes, very high on this team. You mentioned the two guys up top, Mitrovic and Vlahovic. And if one of them is injured, remember, you still have Luka Jovic, a player that not long ago Real Madrid spent 60 million euros on. So I don't know when Serbia became striker you, but they've been <laughs> pumping out center forwards in recent years. You've also got Tadic pulling the strings, Kostic flying down that wing, Milinkovic, Savic in the midfield. So this team is loaded. I think they're clearly the second most talented team in this group and are going to give Brazil a real game in that opener. All right, uh, let's switch to uh, our friends Switzerland. And this is one of these teams, well, it's Switzerland, so there is a neutral aspect to it in that they're not really good, but they're not really bad, but they always seem to find a way, especially when it comes uh, to tournaments. Uh, Jordan Shakiri is still uh, there, Akanji, um, uh, Granit Xhaka, so there's still some, uh, some usual suspects that we know. Not a lot of flash, not very sexy. Well, I mean, you know, that's Switzerland, right? Uh, but a calm, cool, collected type of approach that has paid dividends. Yeah, and you know, they had a sneaky good Euro run. They knocked out France in the round of 16. They've also had a knack for reaching the knockout stage of recent World Cup. So it's not the sexiest team, you're right, but I I'm wary of discounting them. I, I, I think Serbia is better and should be that second team to advance out of this group with Brazil, but I'm hesitant to count out the Switzerland team. Uh, I am, though, going to go with Brazil and Serbia when we do our picks. Okay, all right, that's fine. Uh, finishing up the group, Cameroon. And listen, you know, our, our job is to uh, obviously talk about these teams, but it's also to be honest. And I, I don't see Cameroon doing anything in this World Cup. I don't think they have a proper balance. I do think that they're going to let up goals, and I think that they're going to score goals. So maybe from an entertainment perspective, they may, uh, they may be fun to watch, but I don't think, uh, see them finding a way uh, out, of this, uh, out of this group, and I don't think it's going to be long for Cameroon. And, you know, the past of what Cameroon once was, I don't think that they relight that fire. They do have a player I love in the midfield in Anguissa, who's been so important for Napoli this season, their incredible start to the campaign. Also, Chupo Moting up top, Abubakar. Yeah, so well. yep. there are some good players there, but I agree with you. This is not um, the strongest Cameroon side, so I don't see them with much chance of getting out of this group. All right, let's head off to Group H, and Group H features Portugal. It features Ghana. Then we have uh, Uruguay and South Korea. Let's start off with Portugal. This is a Portuguese team that, like Argentina with Messi, is trying to get over that hump of winning a World Cup for Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, unlike Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo comes into this Portuguese team in a very, very different type of situation uh, than Messi. So much so that there are, it's not even whispers anymore. It is openly talked about uh, in the sense that Cristiano Ronaldo is a, di uh, a distraction. And Cristiano Ronaldo with this team is not as good as this team can be without him. So much so that people are saying, less Cristiano, more Portugal. And for one of the greatest of all time to be in this situation, it's very, very interesting. I wouldn't put it past, I know you wouldn't put it past him to come here, get away from all the Manchester United drama, even though he created it all, and come here to Doha and put in a incredible effort and do some things to kind of turn that narrative on, on its head. You have, last couple of years, have been extolling the virtues of this team in terms of the talent that they have, the depth that they have. Um, are you, 
still do you still believe as much in this Portugal team, especially with the recent developments when it comes to Cristiano? Yeah, the whole doesn't seem to equal the sum of the parts for some reason. And I'm on the page that Ronaldo has become a problem for this team. You know, there's so much talent around them. Guys like Jerome Felix, Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes, Rafael Leon. Part of me would be really curious to watch those guys play without Ronaldo, but uh, I think he's invariably going to be on the field. And you know how he is. When he's there, the ball is like a magnet and all the service is uh, directed towards him. So They also can't press in the way that they maybe correct. would want to at different times. Keep in mind, if he scores in this World Cup, that would trigger two milestones. He'd become the first player to find the back of the net in five men's World Cups, and he'd become the second oldest World Cup goal scorer behind only Roger Mila, who we talked about Cameroon a minute ago. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, you're right. You can never discount uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, but uh, uh, the, the vibes are not good heading into this tournament. Well, there could be some history when it comes to scoring this World Cup. I can't, I can't believe you didn't mention the uh, Neymar possibility of breaking Pele's record. Here. Neymar's at 75, Pele 77. According to FIFA, the Brazilian <laughs> Federation has a very so different. You got an asterisk on going on it? Oh. All right. Uh, let's go to Ghana uh, here. Players to highlight. Obviously. It's no party without Thomas Partey, right? Uh, so definitely a, uh, a big player for them. Kudus, uh, these types of players, there, there is talent. Um, I think that there is enough talent to obviously play well in a World Cup because we have seen, even from an American perspective, we have seen that Ghana in the past has been very, very good. I don't think that this Ghana team in 2022 lives up to previous Ghana teams. Do you agree? Do you think that they're going to find a way out? I agree with you. This is not as good as the teams that terrorized the U.S. in past World Cups. One interesting name, though, is Inaki Williams, whose brother, Nico, is playing for Spain. So I'm excited to watch him. But overall, yeah, I don't give this team much chance to get out of this group. And then finally, in, uh, in this group H, we have South Korea. I actually like this team, but you talk about a team that is playing to one player. This is a team that focuses all of their attention on getting Son the ball. Hyungman uh, Son, we, we know that he had suffered that orbital injury, and we know he's here. He's going to have this whole Phantom of the Opera type of thing with a mask, which may or may not hamper who he is. If it does, it severely hurts the chances of South Korea. Or, who knows, maybe he rises to the occasion and becomes even more of a legend in, uh, in, South, uh, in South Korea than he, already, uh, than he already is. I like this team. I don't think that they're world beaters, but I like them to get out of this group. Yeah, we had a group dinner a couple nights ago, the whole crew at Fox, and I sat at the same table as Tottenham superfan Ali Wagner, <laughs> and I had to listen to a lengthy spiel about how Spurs should drop Son. They're better off with Kulusevski and Richarlison playing off of Kane. And she went on and on about that. But then when we asked about South Korea, she said, oh, no, they have to start him no matter what because he's by far their best player. So that is kind of the vibe here that whatever the injury, they're going to figure out some way to patch him up and get him on the field because he's that important. Keep in mind, South Korea appearing in their 10th straight World Cup dating back to 1986. That's one of the longest active streaks of any country. So they've had no issue getting to the World Cup. They had that memorable run to the semis on home soil in 2002, which was aided by some refereeing. I, when we worked with Goose Hitting four years ago, yeah. I was dying to make a comment to him about that, but I bit my tongue. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a good team. They can't be completely overlooked, but I don't see them getting out of this group. Well, that you were with Ali uh, Wagner, uh, you, you know, it's, it's kind of redundant for you even to mention that uh, then there was a lengthy spiel because no matter what, you're going to uh, get that. And I love you, Ali. I love you, Ali. Uh, got to, oh, you got something else? Uh, we didn't do Uruguay. Yeah, I know. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Don't worry. I'm, I'm going to get there. Don't you worry. I know Sean's in the back telling us that we got to go, so we're going we're gonna to blow through this. Don't worry. Yeah. All right, Uruguay. Um, this, is a, this is a team that obviously traditionally over decades has punched above their weight, given the very small population, 
they play a very simple, um, very straightforward type of tactic, and they rely on the individual talent that they have to rule the day. You talk about that talent, obviously this is the last go around unless something ridiculous happens for a guy like Luis Suarez. I think Cavani is going to come off the bench. He's no longer a starter for this team. But there's also some younger, uh, younger talent, inclu including Darwin Nuez. Do you think that this Uruguay team has what it takes to live up to the past Uruguay team. I like this team. Really? They were dead in the water at one point in qualifying. They made the coaching change. Oscar Tabar is out. They brought in Diego Alonso, and he turned things around. And all of a sudden, they're shaping up to, I think, be a strong team. They have an interesting blend of youth and experience. Nowhere more so than up top, where you have Suarez and Cavani still, but Darwin Nunez, as you mentioned. So how Alonso manages that and how many of those players he gets on the field. And then they have a guy in the midfield that we've been talking about on this podcast for weeks, Federico Valverde, Real Madrid, who's been emerging yep. as one of the best players in in all of Europe. So uh, there, there's definitely some talent there. So I think they're a real threat to do something at this point. You World may Cup. be talking me into them because mm -hmm. I, I'm going back and forth between uh, South Korea and, uh, and Uruguay for that, uh, for that second spot. Um, all right. So that is our preview. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, ooh, it's time for Ask Alexi. And I think we have some questions, Mossy, that have come in, even internationally, on the State of the Union podcast hotline. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> All right, welcome back. It's that time of the show when we take some questions, and uh, we have some hotline questions, Ma. So you keep in mind our uh, State of the Union podcast hotline is 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. But you can always get us on all the uh, social media platforms there. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and keep in mind that all of our handles out there, S-O-T-U with Alexi. That's S-O-T-U with Alexi. And there, social media is never more active than during a World Cup. You know, all the numbers that are set when it comes to all the different platforms out there. And we would expect all of our uh, State of the Union podcast listeners and watchers out there to make sure that they let us know what is going on and how they are feeling about what is going on in the field so we can know, so we can talk about it on the podcast, which we'll continue to bring to you all throughout this, uh, this World Cup. All right, we got some questions? Is that what's going on here? A couple of voicemails. Let's go to the first one right now. Hey, Alexi and Mossy, this is John from Houston. Curious if you guys can be Coach Alexi and Coach Mossy for a second. Um, given our personnel on our U.S. men's national team, curious what kind of system you guys think would be the most effective for our guys, you know, right now and maybe going forward, too, since we have so many great uh, attacking players and it's going to be so hard to get everybody on the field. Um, what kind of system you guys think would be most beneficial? And after that, uh, maybe the coach out there uh, that maybe could best, in your opinion, uh, bring that going forward, whether it's Jim Curtin or Steve Trundle or, or whoever. Curious what you guys think, and uh, looking forward to hearing the answer. Thanks. All right. Uh, John from Houston, thank you very much for the question. Let's uh, First off, uh, let me take the, um, uh, the system question. And, you know, formations and systems, they get thrown around a whole lot, and sometimes – they're almost designed to send you in wrong directions. Uh, when it comes to the system, we have pretty much seen Greg Berhalter go with a 4-3-3 type of situation. In general, I am looking forward, Mossy, I don't know if you are, to a time when we get back to seeing much more of a two-man front line out there. I know it's, it comes and it goes and it's cyclical and it becomes in vogue and, and, and out of vogue. I would love to see if I forced Greg Berhalter to play two players up top, how it would look, 
and ultimately who those players would be. And we've seen in the past two big guys or big guy, small guy, one guy's really fast, one guy's really tall, or both guys are faster. I mean, you, it's, it, it's up to you when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to that. For the most part, we've seen a back four. At times, maybe it's been a, uh, been a back three. I don't think that that necessarily changes. And pretty much traditionally when it comes to the U.S., that's what I would like to see, and I think it makes it – I think it makes it easy, even though it at times poses challenges. But there, you take with the good with the bad, with regardless of what formation uh, that you had. As far as the best coach, Greg Berhalter is going to be judged, Mossy, by this World Cup. Might not be right, might not be fair, but welcome to life. Welcome to life and welcome to coaching soccer. He knows it, and every coach knows it. And there, it's a very, very rare coach that is judged on more than that. Having said that, Greg Berhalter, I think regardless of what happens here in the next couple of weeks, can look at his tenure and be very, very proud because it was incredibly successful in not just the results that he got, but the things that he did, the players that he brought along, and maybe more importantly, the way we now think about this team is a lot to do with the way that Greg Berhalter has brought along this team. Uh, I don't know what the powers that be, whether it's uh, you know a uh, Ernie Stewart uh, or whether it's a Brian McBride, what they envision for the future. I certainly could see them saying, we started this project and we want to see it out, obviously, to, to, uh, to 2026, especially with this young team. I'm of the opinion, Mossy, that no coach, regardless of how well he or she does in a World Cup, win the World Cup or bomb out uh, in the group stage, that a cycle is enough. It gets stale. And in particular with this group that was so young, if you look at someone like Gio Reyna, if you look at someone like Tyler Adams, if you look at someone like Brendan Aronson, they are very, very different people and players than they were just a year ago, and certainly four years ago when Greg uh, Berhalter took a hold. And I'm not saying that he can't adjust, but when you have that familiarity, sometimes it doesn't resonate as much because you have changed as a person, and that dynamic drastically changes between coach and player. So regardless, I think that they should make a change. To your question, ultimately, John, there are going to be the usual suspects out there, uh, whether it's a Jim Curtin from Philadelphia, maybe a Steve Cherundolo, a little I think it's still a little early for him. Uh, Peter Vermes is a guy I got a lot of time for in terms of the big picture way in which he thinks about it and thinks about U.S. soccer and all of the talent, both old and young, that he has brought along at Sporting KC. But I'm telling you this, Mozzie, there are going to be plenty of people that are going to be knocking down the door and maybe already are sending in their uh, resumes to for this plum position. And not just because it's the U.S. and they have this wonderful group of talent that is growing, but also 2026. That is the cherry for so many, uh, so, so many coaches out there. I know a lot of people talk about Jesse Marsh, too. I think it's going to be difficult. In a certain way, he's kind of forced his own hand in that he has done well Looks to be like he's going to continue on there, and if he does, it wouldn't be a good look for him to leave and go to the U.S., although stranger things have happened, and certainly he would absolutely be on any list. Mission to see that eternal debate between foreign coach versus American coach, which way that pendulum swings, I think a lot will depend on how Greg Berhalter does at this World Cup. Even if he doesn't stick around, if he does well, there would be more of an appetite for another American to take over. Um, but to go back to the system question, um, you mentioned two up top. I would argue for no one up top. Uh, I've been saying this. Given the U.S. personnel, I think Greg Berhalter should have been a lot more open to playing without a center forward and just getting his best players on the field. And he doesn't seem 
to be too interested in that. But uh, to me, it's a crime if Jesus Ferreira plays more minutes than Gio Reyna or Brendan Aronson at this World Cup. So that's my one quibble with Berhalter. I think you could have been more open-minded about that. Interesting. I mean, we are faced with a situation, Mossy, speaking of Gio and Brendan Aronson, where come the opening game against Wales on Monday, both of those players, Gio Reyna playing at the Bundesliga for, uh, for Dortmund, undeniable young talent, and more importantly, is healthy, and Brendan Aronson playing in the EPL, lighting it up for, uh, for Leeds, aren't even in the starting 11. Now, that should blow your mind, but in a good way, in a strange way, right? Because the amount of talent that Greg Berhalter has at his disposal makes it so some of these players aren't going to get on the field, at least in a starting capacity. Now, they're great to have coming off of the bench, but to your point, are you leaving something on the table? And while we always say that a national team isn't about the best players, it's about the best collection of players, maybe this is the one time where you say, well, the best collection of players is putting the best players that we have on the field and just having them figure it out because, yes, they're young, but they are incredibly talented, and you're leaving something... Uh, literally behind by not having them play. All right, we got another question? Yep, let's go to the second voicemail. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. Uh, my name's Brian. I'm from Michigan. I'm a fellow Detroit City FC owner. Um, my question is, uh, throughout the pod, uh, you used to have an actual State of the Union with the drums in the background and uh, espousing something about the day. Um, I would love to hear what you have to say uh, to the the U.S. team that's about to take the field in Qatar. Um, so fire up the drums and, and let's hear uh, your pep talk for the guys. Thanks, guys. Love the pod. Have a good one. All right. Uh, thank you, Brian, from Michigan. And uh, go Detroit City FC. Yes, a fellow owner. Um, and uh, we are doing great things when it comes to soccer in uh, in Detroit. Couldn't be prouder of my uh, my hometown team when it comes to Detroit City FC. All right. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the, the rage right now uh, to have people give fired-up types of speeches. Um, I wrote some stuff down in anticipation of this question. I'm not quite ready to deliver it in the way that it needs to be delivered. Um, what, are you reading it over here? Are you I reading am, it over yes. my shoulder, shoulder here? It is epic. Oh, my God. Well, okay. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate <laughs> that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tease it, all right? So, yeah, I'm going to – I got – I, I, I want to work on it a little bit. Mossy, you know, you're, you're a wordsmith. So, you know, I just – I want to zhuzh it a little bit so that I get it. Because, you know, there's the over-the-top, uh, you know, WWE-esque type of delivery that certainly works, but sometimes – Volume doesn't always equate to energy and, and passion. There's the understated gravitas, Morgan Freeman type of poetry that you certainly can do. And Which want, you can't pull off. I, I, can't, I can't do that. But, so I, I, but I want to make sure that I'm able to do it. So I'm going to work on this. And at some point, maybe before, uh, before the end of the, uh, the tournament, when the, when the U.S. really, really needs it, I, I will uh, I will lay it out there. All right. Does that sound uh, Does that sound good? Anyway, I appreciate both of the uh, questions, both from John and from uh, from Brian. It's international now, right? Let's take another break here. When we come back, oh yeah, we got something different, something a little interesting for the end of the show that we haven't done before. So don't go anywhere. <laughs> 
All right, welcome back. It is the final part of our show here, and today we want to do something a little bit different because we're here at the World Cup, right? And a lot has happened over the last cycle when it comes to soccer, and in particular when it comes to tournament play, which is one of the places where we kind of looked for context. And we have been fortunate enough to cover a lot of these tournaments. And what we wanted to kind of do is just give you a real quick rundown and a look back over the last four years as to where we were and how we got to be sitting here in Doha getting ready for the World Cup to kick off. All right. Let's start back in 2018, Mossy. Um, we remember that France won the World Cup. What people sometimes forget is that coming into the World Cup, yes, France was a good team. I think for, by some look, recognized as a potentially elite team. But they came in and they barnstormed. They came in and they turned everybody's head. And when that started to happen, not only was the team looked at it in a different way, but individual players were looked at in a different way, including, and not the least of which, is Kylian Mbappe, who, who wasn't unknown by any stretch of the imagination, but really cemented his international stardom with what happened. Ultimately winning in that final uh, over Croatia, which was a surprise in, in and of itself, and we find ourselves four years later now looking at these returning champions and seeing whether they are going to do it. But in that moment, in that time, there was the ooh and ah factor about that France team. Yeah, Mbappe scored four goals. Um, the only teenager who ever scored more in a single World Cup was Pele when he got six in 1958. So incredible breakout performance. And I'm very curious to see what he does in this tournament now as an established star. All right, well, let's fast forward then to 2029. The Gold Cup, which is always you know, such a litmus test when it comes to CONCACAF, and in particular for Mexico and the U.S. as they go back and forth. The Gold Cup happened in 2019. Mexico, at that point, topping the United States. That final was held in Chicago on a 1-0 scoreline there. And after that moment... Because being in, in, the, in a Gold Cup final with the United States and Mexico isn't necessarily something that is surprising. It happens, and it happens more often than you would think. But losing to Mexico and obviously coming off of not qualifying for the World Cup and kind of hoping to see a resurrection of the team, that wasn't a great feeling in that moment. It, come, it came to change later on, but in that moment, losing to Mexico, I think a lot of people were looking around saying, are we heading in the right direction, or are we continue, continuing to head in the wrong direction? Yeah, you might recall uh, the summer of 2019 was jam-packed, much to Grant Wall's chagrin. He felt like the deck should have been cleared for the Women's World Cup. We were in France covering that tournament, but you also had the Gold Cup going on at the same time. And actually, just a few hours after the U.S. women won the World Cup, beating the Netherlands in a final, that's when this Gold Cup final took place in Chicago. And you're right, Mexico won 1-0, and what a different time. Tata Martino had gotten off to a great start. U.S. fans were pining for him and ripping on Greg Berhalter. And and uh, this game was, was held up as evidence that the U.S. should have hired Tata instead. And obviously his time uh, with Mexico has turned sour, so nobody's saying that now necessarily. Uh, but, yeah, memorable game, Mexico coming out on top. Well, notwithstanding what Grant uh, wants uh, for this summer, there was still plenty of action uh, out there, including uh, the introduction that year of the Nations League. Now, this was a concept that was created to give, me, give games more meaning, give, make more competitive games. In this day and age of you know, constant friendlies, there was a real desire from confederations uh, to put together tournaments that pitted teams 
in a way that ultimately the teams cared, but also the fans cared. And I think that it really kind of opened everybody's eyes. England, our friends from England, actually had a really impressive showing in that First Nations League, finishing third. But ultimately, it was Cristiano Ronaldo and Portugal snagging the trophy over the Netherlands, one nothing. And not only in that moment winning a trophy, but I think really kind of stamping the arrival and the approval of what the Nations League or the concept of the Nations League wanted to be. Yeah, it was a good idea by UEFA. It's been a big success. That tournament's had a lot of juice. Um, and, you know, we talk about why would Fernando Santos stay loyal to Cristiano Ronaldo. It's because of the kind of performance that he produced in the semifinals of this uh, Nations League. He scored a hat-trick against Switzerland, three incredible goals. I think one of his best ever games for Portugal. Um, and then ultimately they won uh, the final against the Netherlands. So, yeah, very good first edition of the Nations League, which culminated with Ronaldo and Portugal lifting the trophy. Now, look, I love me a Copa America. We never know when, I, when it's actually going to happen. It's, uh, you know, Centenario, it happens, it happens every year, every couple years, whatever. But it doesn't really matter because if there is a Copa America, I'm in, I am there for it. And this was no different in 2019 Copa America. Your Brazil gives you another opportunity to talk about Brazil here. Topped Peru in the final. Argentina, incidentally, uh, finished third. But as we will see coming up, they also found a way to get uh, get their revenge. But in that moment in 2019, it was all about Brazil. Happy days are here. We're heading towards the World Cup in a few years with this, uh, with this team. Can you hearken back and remember how the sentiment was at that time when Brazil won the uh, Copa America in 2019? I, I remember exactly. Um, as I mentioned, we were in France covering the Women's World Cup. As soon as our coverage of the final ended, you guys all went to a bar to celebrate. <laughs> I rushed back to my hotel to watch this Copa America final. Brazil beat Peru 3-1 at the Maracanã. Brazil, mind you, um, beat Argentina 2-0 in the semifinals, a very controversial match. Messi was unhappy with the officiating. He went on a rant afterwards, got himself suspended. But that whole incident had a galvanizing effect that... I think really set Argentina off on their run. That semifinal defeat to Brazil is the last game they've lost. They're 36 unbeaten since then, one shy of the international record held by Italy. They're probably going to break that in this World Cup. So, yes, Brazil won, but uh, Argentina took some good things out of that tournament as well. That was when Scaloni really asserted himself, and, and Messi really seemed to buy into him, and he endeared himself to the whole group. And so, uh, the interesting sort of the reverberations from that tournament. All right, last one, and certainly not least, because we look at these tournaments as context for a lot of stuff that we talk about when it comes to the World Cup. The Asian Cup in 2019, and why do we talk about that? Well, it featured none other than Qatar, the host nation, and not only featured them, but ultimately they went on a magical run. They ultimately beat Japan uh, in the final to, to win their first major international trophy behind a lot of the players that we are going to see. We were recording this on a Saturday. We are going to see tomorrow on Sunday as Qatar takes on... Uh, takes on Ecuador. So that was, you know, that was a really impressive moment in this trajectory of what Qatar is. And we know that they have gone out of their way to play as many different games, as many different types of competitions, as many different tournament situations that they could uh, that they could get into while still doing what they needed to do at home. But this was a big moment for the country because it kind of it it, it clarified and uh, put the stamp on what their trajectory was and what that pathway was in that they were heading in the right direction. 
Yeah, this was the first time that Akram Afif and Amwez Ali hit my radar because they were both sensational in this tournament. Afif ended up winning 2019 Asian Footballer of the Year, and those are the two guys you're really going to be counting on at this World Cup. So that was kind of a coming out party for them at the international level. Yeah, great triumph for Qatar, and obviously they hope for more success uh, at home here. All right, well, listen, then we get to 2020, and we all know that our world completely changed both on and off the soccer field with, uh, with COVID. The Euros get delayed, Nations League, it did get underway, but let's be honest, it was such a strange um, and horrible year. Let's uh, you know, call, it what it, call it what it is. We had you know, these, these stark, empty, soulless types of games without fans. They were sterile in terms of the environment, but... We were just throwing stuff against the wall, trying to figure out anything that we possibly could to get our uh, to get our soccer fix in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, less said about 2020, the better. Coming to 2021, Nations League, as we mentioned, France ultimately becomes champions with a win over Spain in the final two to one. Italy, incidentally, takes third, but ultimately misses out on the World Cup. So the return of the Nations League continues on with some really, really good games and some fun, entertaining, and most importantly, competitive types of games. Yeah, this Final Four was incredible. All the games, Spain beat Italy in one semifinal. That's what snapped Italy's 37-match unbeaten run, a record that I think Argentina is going to break at this World Cup. And then France rallied to beat Belgium in the other semifinal, and ultimately France beat Spain in the final. And France, remember, they, they struggled at the Euros, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but this was an example of where the Mbappe-Benzema partnership can work, the way they played in these two games in the final four of this Nations League. So that's a scary proposition for everybody at this World Cup. Those two have shown that they can click together and, and be very good. This was also a point where I think the narrative when it comes to the U.S. men's national team started to change. Obviously, in the midst of qualifying, um, another Gold Cup final, uh, Nations League, all of this type of stuff was going on. And the positive, uh, and, and it wasn't cautiously optimistic, I think the optimism really started to change, including that uh, Gold Cup final, made me weep on the sidelines for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is that we had kind of come out of that COVID bubble that we were in, and I saw my U.S. team doing great things, and in particular against Mexico, anytime that happens. Uh, so in general, and I know we focused on the, uh, the Gold Cup here, but there was a lot to be excited about and happy about when it came to 2021 and this U.S. men's national team. Yeah, 2021 was a summer when all this U.S. promise went from theory to practice. We actually got to see it on the field. They won two trophies, beating Mexico in both finals. They used the quote-unquote A-team in the Nation's League, beat Mexico 3-2 in extra time, Pulisic with a late penalty. Remember Ethan Horvath coming yep. off the bench to be a hero. And then right afterwards, the Gold Cup, where they used their quote-unquote B-team, although you bristle at that designation. Um, that team had more of an underdog kind of identity. They were able to sort of grind their way through that tournament, a lot of one nils, including in the final and extra time against Mexico, Miles Robinson uh, with the goal in Las Vegas. It brought you to tears. And yeah, so that, that was an incredible summer that really launched this U.S. national team under Greg Berhalter. All right, well, you mentioned the Euros. Uh, they were finally played. And when they were, it was an incredibly exciting uh, tournament. England, it was coming home. Everybody thought it was coming home. Ultimately, it didn't quite come home at the end. They weren't able to beat Italy. They lost to them in uh, penalties in the final. I guess they got the last laugh ultimately because England is going to the World Cup and our friends the Azzurri for the second time in a row are not going to, uh, to the World Cup. Thoughts on the Euros? 
I know that uh, Warren Barton, Kelly Smith, Annie Aluko, Kate Abdo, we have a lot of English people in our, our crew. Too many, way too many. Um, I know they don't want to hear this, but, boy, for a team that wasn't the quote-unquote host of a tournament, they got to play a whole lot of home games, uh, which I think really facilitated this run to the final for them. And, and they got to play at Wembley in the final against Italy and scored after just two minutes with Luke Shaw. So you thought this was it. It's finally coming home. And then, of course, England allowed Italy to equalize and ultimately lost some penalties, so heartbreak for them. But... Um, what Garrett Southgate backers are pointing out is that in the two major tournaments he's managed, they've gone very far. They got to the semifinals of the last World Cup and the final of the Euros. So although they've had a terrible performance in this most recent Nations League, England fans are hoping that uh, they bring their major tournament form under Southgate into this World Cup. In, in a different world, uh, Gareth Southgate is knighted. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean for, for what he's doing, but this is England, and uh, that's not how it works. All right, now we get to some interesting stuff when it comes to Copa America. Again, love me some Copa America. This is a moment that does provide context for what we're about to talk about here for the next month when it comes to Messi and Argentina, because this was a checking of the box when Argentina not only won, but won against their biggest South American rival in Brazil and in the Maracanã. That was a, a huge box to check. You saw in that final moment when the whistle blew how important it was to Messi and how important it was to his teammates to kind of give him this because it is something that, has been, that he has been chasing. Now, does that mean that the constant compare and contrast between Diego Mar Maradona is going to stop? No, because Diego won a World Cup. But it does give him, I think, a a warmth and a confidence going into this World Cup. But it had to hurt, my friend, to have Argentina come into the Maracanã and in that final of the, uh, the Copa America, take it right out of your jaws. Yeah, remember, this tournament was originally going to be co-hosted by Argentina and Colombia, and then those two countries backed out because of COVID. Brazil stepped in at the last minute, so it was a little bit odd to, two years later, have another Copa America in Brazil. Brazil were the big favorites. But Argentina came out on top in that final one. Di Maria with the goal. And, yeah, I think they've taken a lot of confidence out of that, and which could carry over into this World Cup. Keep in mind, though, there were some positives for Brazil because uh, that defeat to Argentina is what prompted Chichi to realize that he needed to add more spark to the attack. Um, Brazil, the first three years of the cycle, we were kind of a plotting team that wasn't all that exciting to watch. But since then, Vinicius Jr. has emerged, players like Rafinha, Anthony, Rodrigo, Martinelli even got into the squad. And so it's given the team a whole different flavor, a lot of young, explosive, dynamic legs in that attack. Um, so yeah, obviously, Argentina took major positives out of it. But I think if Brazil ends up winning this World Cup, ultimately, we might look at that Copa America final defeat as a bit of an inflection point as well. Okay. All right. Again, context. Uh, so the Olympics were pushed back, too. We finally get the Olympics. And from a Brazilian standpoint, it went well. Brazil winning gold, topping Spain for in that gold medal game 2-1. to one. And Mexico doing well, too, beating Japan for the bronze. Yeah, this softened the blow a little bit from Brazil losing the Copa America a few weeks later, winning their second straight Olympic gold medal, beating Spain in the final. And there were some players that used this tournament as a springboard to the senior team that are here at this World Cup, players like Anthony and Bruno Guimarães. Brazil take the Olympics very seriously, more so than most countries. And so if you do well for Brazil in that tournament, you generally find yourself into the next senior squads. I know you're somebody that agrees with how Brazil treats it and doesn't understand why other countries don't value the Olympics as much. Yeah, I mean, I just think that we have very few opportunities to put players in environments that are going to test them, that are going to 
to use a Jurgen Klinsmann phrase, put them out of their comfort zone or are going to blood them for the tournaments. And the tournament we're talking about ultimately is the World Cup. And I know the Olympics aren't necessarily the World Cup, but it's kind of the next best thing. And especially for younger players. And I just look back, I know that I benefited from 1992. And I could not have had the 94 success without also playing in and going through a, uh, an Olympic process in 1992. And as we know, for multiple cycles now, the U.S. has wasted that opportunity and that platform. Let's, let's be thankful that we're finally going back to the next uh, Olympics and we can use that platform to get some players. Who, who knows? We may be talking about in a very different way, or just even talking about come 2026. Uh, all right, so we uh, spin it forward to 2022, and I think we're going to go right to Africa Cup of Nations. This is very, very important, and this is kind of timely right now because all of the talk about Senegal, and there's a lot of people out there that are talking about Senegal as their dark horse type of team, but a lot of the talk about Senegal is because of you know, both of the wins that they had ultimately against Egypt. One was the African Cup of Nations, and then they doubled down in terms of beating Egypt and Mo Salah to go to the World Cup. A big, big year, strange year, uh, as you uh, had mentioned to me before off-air, uh, because, you know, Senegal actually plays two major tournaments in one year, but, you know, this is 2022. Anything can happen. We do some, uh, we do some strange things. And it's important because Sadio Mane, we find out is now not going to be playing in the tournament because of an injury. That is a huge, huge loss for the tournament in general, but it's also a huge, huge loss for this Senegal team. And I think it changes the conversation when it comes to who you others are, are think are going through in that uh, in that Group A. Yeah, very disappointing. I drove past a big Sadio Mane billboard here the other day, and uh, you know, to have him not be able to push on all the great things he's done, African Player of the Year, runner-up in the Ballon d'Or, and to be able to represent his country at the World Cup is disappointing. Uh, but he did lead them earlier this year to their first Africa Cup of Nations title, as you mentioned, beating Egypt there. Also got the better of Egypt and Mosul in qualifying, which made things very awkward in that Liverpool dressing room, by the way. Klopp has talked about how he couldn't congratulate Mane too loudly if Salah was uh, close by, so... Uh, but nevertheless, yeah, this was a, a great triumph for them, and we'll see what they can do at this World Cup without Sadio Mane. All right, well, this has been everything that you need to know, and we only wanted to do this because I think it is important to just remind ourselves, and whether it's us or the people that are watching or the people that are listening, to remind ourselves of how much has happened over this last cycle and how much of that can actually inform some of the stuff that we are seeing. And you heard Mossy talk about Brazil and the way that they used either the wins or the defeats in tournaments like uh, Copa America or the United States. Greg Berhalter absolutely will be informed by some of the things that he saw in the Nations League, in the Gold Cup, obviously in uh, World, Cup, uh, World Cup qualifying. And yes, we're going to talk about the whistle is going to blow and the games are going to happen and the context is going to become what happened in the previous game here in the World Cup. But everything that you see on that field it has roots. It has tentacles that stretch back. And sometimes we forget with so much soccer that happens day in and day out, month in and, and year out, sometimes we forget all of the different things uh, that we had. So we just wanted to go back and check that out for, uh, for, for you and for us, let's, uh, let, let's be honest. All right, Mossy, anything before we go? That's it. My man, you look great, and uh, you are doing a wonderful job. This man right here, ladies and gentlemen, is working his ass off, okay, as are all incredible men and women in front of the camera, behind the camera, to get us set for what is going to be an absolute blowout of a tournament from a Fox perspective. I mentioned the incredible set that we have here. It is 
unlike anything that you have ever seen. And it's not just about bells and whistles. It augments uh, an incredible group of talent that we have, bringing it to you day in and day out. I'll be honest, I live for this. This is, I could not be happier. I'm a pig and you know what. And I am rolling around in the World Cup. You smell that? That's a World Cup. And there's nothing like it, my friends. All right. We will see you next time right here on the State of the Union podcast. And until then, and as always, size the day. Goodbye from Doha.